Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. Today, I'm speaking to Lambros Fatsis, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Brighton, and Malena Lamb, Lecturer at the University of Law London. They are the authors of a new book called Policing the Pandemic, How Public Health Becomes Public Order. Written in the context of the Black Lives Matter protests, the book explores why law enforcement responses to the pandemic were prioritised over welfare provision. The public were treated as the virus rather than protected against it. What does this tell us about the state's criminal justice institutions? A key theme of the book that spoke to me was the need to think about not just how we're policed, but why we're policed. So let's talk about this more. Hi, Lambros and Belena. Hello. Hi, thanks for speaking to me today. So your book has been described by Adam Elliott Cooper as a visionary guide to the world in which the response to ill health is state violence. Can we start by talking through what the pandemic has shown us about the relationship between public health and public order? Yeah, I think... um... Part of what we're trying to do in the book is to kind of unearth those moments where the conceptual and institutional imbrication between policing and public health um, are kind of a, a manifest. And I think that's become particularly acute during the pandemic. Um, but we often think about public health institutions as being somewhat different or qualitatively different from criminal justice institutions, right? You don't, you don't necessarily immediately think of the police when you think of uh, the NHS or something. And I think what the, what the pandemic's shown, although I don't think this originates with the pandemic, but I think it has shown um, the way in which um, policing and public health are very much implicated um and and kind of work together um institutionally and part of uh, part of what we're trying to do is to show the conceptual history of that of those linkages um the way in which disorder and disease have kind of been linguistically forged together um so that the state performs its kind of presumed necessity for social life by saying we can fight disorder um, in terms of both disease and in terms of crime and the way that these things become kind of conflated um, through the eyes of the state, if that makes sense. Um, And I think someone's work um, particularly interesting in this regard is the work of Ed Cohen, who shows um, the history of the concept of immunity, which was originally a legal concept which then gets taken up by the medical community to describe a bodily process um, whereby our bodies defend against external threats via this mechanism of immunity. But it was, on, a le- it was a legal thing first? Yeah. yeah. Wow, okay, that's really yeah. interesting. So he, So in his discussion of the concept of immunity, he's really showing where the medical and political um, languages become or are shown to be, um, they kind of borrow from each other, right? And Mm. and there's this really interesting cross-pollination between the two. Um, So things that we think of as being kind of naturally uh, intuitive, like something like immunity, he shows to actually be taken from this political language, political legal language. Um, And I'm thinking about that in terms of the pandemic and and in terms of how uh, political institutions 
and medical institutions um, sort of borrow from each other, uh, not only at the level of language, but at the level of policy as well. So um, and, uh, an anthropologist called Adia Benton in the US talks about how um, Black Lives Matter and um, anti-fascist movements were, um, the leaders of these movements were sought out by the police and by the federal government using methods like contact tracing, right? right. So there's, there's an even deeper Kind of connection here between policing um, and and kind of medical medical methods and language, right? Whereby contact tracing is is not only used for disease, but but is used for um, you know to find uh, activists and organizers by the government. So yeah. I think that's really interesting thinking about the connections at, at, at both the, la the level of language and the level of of institutions as well. Definitely, Lambros. Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of that relationship between um, public health and public order, odd, oddly enough, and for the reasons that Milena uh, explains, they're actually one and the same in, in the sense that they both terms describe how uh, government and the state orders, that is to say, regulates the health of the public okay um yeah. by 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 shielding us from danger but what is important for us i think to think about here is what order we're talking about and whose health are we talking about um so is is that order that is being protected natural uh preordained um or metaphysically imposed or is it created historically and E equally and equally importantly um you know is that order democratically arrived at or is it ordered uh, by by political hierarchies that that essentially shape and are shaped by access to political power? So I guess another way of thinking about this is to think, as I said before, you know, whose health is being protected? Is it the health of the state, or is it the health of um, the state's subject, as it were? And if it is the health of the public, why don't we all have? equal access to and, and provision of healthcare and welfare to protect us from, you know, infectious diseases. So I guess the book opens up with that question by, by addressing why was a public order slash law enforcement approach to, to the pandemic prioritized since we, all we needed was essentially care and support. So, so what links order and health together is essentially politics. It's the sociopolitical context that links the two together. So what is healthy is an ordered public that is assigned its appropriate place within established social hierarchies. And I think that's, that's quite important to, to note. Um, so, so ultimately what, what the book tries to do, not just, the, not just in relation to uh, public health and public order, but more generally is to think how did we end up with those terms to describe our social reality? Who put them there? Um, who, who decided that these should be the, the main features of, of the social and political world that we are familiar with? And I think these are crucial questions for us to, to think about, to get a better understanding of why is the world that we live in uh, you know, instituted in the way that it currently is. Uh, and once we realize that, then we start um, you know, interpreting what, what words mean and what their impact is on our lives in, in a different way, um, just, just like Lena showed in her answer. It's very easy to just go through our lives without that critical thinking and questioning as well, isn't it? Because we take so much of this for granted. What you've just said 
kind of leads on to my next question um, in terms of who's deserving of this protection and who's undeserving. So policing is political and that some people are seen to be deserving of protection while others are seen as a threat to order and the health, health and health of the state. Can you explain this and show how it plays out? Policing is fundamentally political because it is a political institution and, and it was established as one. So it was established as a political institution, um, you know, to protect, serve and maintain uh, the order that established um, policing and, and the order that it just, it, it, you know, that the policing was established to, to protect um so to protect the integrity of that order. So, so it is always an imposed institution. And even if it's, uh, you know, so it's never really voted for. And even if it is voted for, uh, and even if voters support it, it still serves the interests of essentially white affluent middle-class people who are not usually policed. Mm. But, so it's an institution whose support relies on those who have no relationship with um with the police ultimately yeah and there's also much like um public health and public order the very linguistic ideological and historical roots of policing are also political so the very word itself is essentially a synonym for policy and politics as well um so, so again this is a useful reminder that that those things come together and that they're not sort of random Again, oh. connections we just don't really make all the time, do we? Absol- yeah. Absolutely. It's and obvious when to, you say it, yeah. And they have to do, you know, a lot about belonging as well, not just mm. in cultural but in sociopolitical terms. So so the reason why Black Britons, for example, are disproportionately, selectively and racially, racially criminalised has to do, as we show in the book, um, um, you know, with a long colonial history of policing, as an instrument of racial uh, terror. So although the standard history of policing is that it it somehow emerges in Victorian England or London in particular, um, you know, without any interrogation of the imperial colonial context that that surrounds the formation of of the London Metropolitan um, Police or indeed the very colonial models uh, on on which it was um, on which it was based. And, you know, the, the history of policing as we're showing in the book is imperial colonial by, by default. Um, and and that's, why, that's why it targets non-white people um, today. So, so the logics are the same and the, the laws are, are the same, sometimes very much, um, not just the same, but identical. So stop and search, for example, um, which disproportionately targets Black Britons today is based on 19th century uh, legislation against vagrancy. Right, yeah. Um, and those laws are preceded by police regulations that were equally aimed at the, at, at the pursuit, capture, uh, suppression and punishment of the enslaved in Britain, Britain's colonies as well. So uh, this is a very, very important, um, you know, historical and political context to to bear in mind, because mm-hmm. even when policing did target, as it continues to do, um, you know, the English white working class in Victorian times, as well as uh, at present, the logics and the tactics that were used to introduce police forces uh, ultimately come from colonial models of uh, policing in the Caribbean, right. um, Ireland and the Indian subcontinent too. Um, 
I, I don't want to say too much because that's going to take the entire <laughs> yeah. time of the podcast, but the book documented that, um, you know. Yeah, those connections quite, quite are really fascinating and so important in terms of being able to understand where we are now. Can I just add um, yeah. something to that? You know, I, I think it's also important to think about and something that, um, you know, quite often with 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 histories of the police or in scholarship about the police um it's often very kind of narrowly focused on a particular institution whether that you know be kind of um you know the the emergence of the police in the uk or or the emergence of the us police force which is it's very well known emerged out of the slave patrols um in in the us and i think um something else that the book is trying to do is to kind of is to signal how um anti-blackness um, and policing, the, the, the problem of anti-blackness and, and policing is a global problem, right? And, and while there are different um, kind of national histories with regard to these problems, as Lambros was just, was just um, saying um, with regard to the, the history of colonialism and imperialism in Britain, um, the, the fact that, um, you know, disproportionality um, exists in, not only in the UK and the US, but in other countries such as France, um, shows us that, that these problems can't just be explained via um, national histories, right, but, or via a history of those particular national institutions, because, you know, that the, the fact that um, disproportionate amounts of, of Black people are stopped and searched here, as well as um, uh, stopped and, and killed in the US, right, the, these, these, um, these statistics should give us pause for thought, I think, and really, um, we should be thinking about this as, as a problem that goes, um, that transcends national borders, um, but also says something about the logic of police power in and of itself, right? It's not, it's not just about um, um, particular institutional histories, although, although, of course, that's important as well. And if I can add to that, I, I think, you know, what, what both Milena and I are, are, are trying to, I guess, highlight here, among other things, is that we should think about policing as as a you know political logic, as a governing logic, not not as a crime fighting institution, but rather as an order maintenance institution that is there in order to uh, you know es essentially um, you know pr protect the, the the sort of you know mainstream hierarchical social and political order that we are familiar with. But, but what is also interesting from from that sort of global perspective are also the interconnections between, um, I guess, particular nations, if, if, you, if we want to put it this way. So for example, uh, you, you know, many would defensively say, well, you know, um, the, 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 the roots of um, policing in, in, in Britain have nothing to do with um, colonialism and imperialism, which of course is not true because slave legislation essentially emerged um, in order to create colonial militias, again, as we, as we show in the book. But what is also interesting to note, which is often forgotten when, when comparisons with the US are made, um, particularly by saying, well, you know, British models of policing did not emerge from the slave patrols, is that even if we accept that, which is not true, um, what is interesting is that a lot of the legislation that created a lot of the slave legislation in the US was actually written by Englishmen and some right. of it even by people who, uh, like John Locke, who, who, who we know as an, you know, um, 
English liberal philosophers. So that there are those connections as well that are, I think, interesting to to note. That that you know, here we have an English philosopher who actually wrote, didn't just write, you know, treatises about philosophy, but also wrote the very slave codes and slave laws in Virginia, for example, mm. uh, that that did patrol the enslaved in the U.S. So one could say that if even if one was to accept that, which is not true historically and factually, that um, there is no colonial um, history in in British policing that even the, the history of American policing um, is, it, you know, comes from British colonialism because it was um, a British colonial rule that established those yeah. laws before they became American. As yeah, well. yeah. So you've, my next question um, was about what I mentioned in the introduction is this focus on um, not how we're policed, but why we're policed. And you've already answered it really because policing it isn't necessarily about protecting us is it so my question of what is it for is to do with this kind of maintaining the integrity of the order and the structure of society I suppose did you have anything else you wanted to add to that I guess my answer to that would be that you know it protects some of us not all of us so so the we and us here is is quite important yes yeah to to think about in the sense that uh, you know Policing protects those who are not seen as a threat to the state, culturally, socially, and politically. Yeah. Um, by policing those who are seen as, as such a threat. So essentially, policing polices life outside, beyond, and without the state, or those who are seen as undeserving of, of the state's uh, protection. There's, there's actually quite a nice um, phrase that illustrates that in the, in, in the strict context of um Victorian policing in England, uh, and that comes from um, from a saying that was quite popular in Victorian England at the time that Robert Storch talks about in an essay called um, "The Plague of the Blue Locusts." And there is this phrase that you guard St James by watching St Giles, where St James, of course, is an affluent area as it still is, and it and it was uh, in nineteenth mm. century London by watching St Giles, which was, of course, an impoverished um, area yeah. of London as well. So, so there's this sort of relationship between St James and St Giles and the power differential, the differentials that shape that relationship that are important. And that is the same now. It, that's how it works, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's why we insist on, on introducing um, or, or rather just fleshing out the fact that Policing isn't uh, an order maintenance institution, and what it does is, is protects that unequal social order that is marked by hierarchies that are classed, raced, and uh, you know heteronormatively gendered as well. Mm. So, so cr- crime is actually the excuse that the state uses to police social status. Ultimately, so crime itself is is very often a status offence. It's a matter of being rather than doing. Um, so it's a matter of who belongs and who doesn't, who needs to be controlled and who doesn't. Um, you know, how one protects the, the health of the social body um, r- rather than, you know, chasing um, law-breaking actions or, or, or activities. And it's important here to note, of course, that, you know, there are things that are deemed illegal for some groups of people rather than others. And, and the active ingredient here, too, is, is politics. So 
just just to give one last example about what we mean when, when we say that policing is not a crime fighting institution is to think that crime is essentially only refers to legally punishable offenses and I think again the pandemic is useful to think about that for example going out of your house was not a legally punishable offense before the first restrictions came in but once those came in it became a crime to leave one's house so that's mm -hmm. important to think about when we think about crime that it's not a phenomenon that exists it's actually the outcome of um the law. It is, uh, it is the outcome of criminal justice action. It, it's not something that, it's not the same as violence and harm. Violence and harm exist without necessarily being crime. So it's only crime if it's defined as crime by the law. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Malena, did you have anything to add there? Yeah, maybe just to say that, you know, um, yeah, I completely agree with what, what Lambros was just saying, but that also, um, you know, the the police do things which which cannot be considered a either legal or or b as kind of um as kind of dealing with crime right so there's an example just to, to just to give another example um i saw that the police in in shoreditch the other day were out in force swabbing um uh people's hands for for drugs on their hands um to see to see if they could find any traces of drugs now now this is not uh this this is not the the police going out and using uh, a legal power to enforce um to enforce the law in the sense that possess you know like um sorry using drugs is is not the criminal offense right and so mm -hmm. and so this really raises like like huge amounts of questions like like what powers are they using to do that like why why are they swabbing people's hands um on the street in shoreditch and what are they going to do if they do find traces of drugs on that person is that they're going to then then use that as a pretext to to um, um use further police powers on this person person but for you know for what purpose right if, mm -hmm. if if someone is going out to a club in Shoreditch and, and using drugs um you know why why are the police using these resources in this time to, to to go and swab people's hands when yeah this isn't like this isn't these people aren't necessarily even committing crimes you know um in in, in any way that could be um um, tangibly defined um, by using that power, if that makes sense. It was just a really odd um, thing that they were doing. Um, and so, and so presumably but, they didn't give any. Re they didn't have to give a reason for why they were doing it either, did they? They didn't have to explain themselves, or well, you know, I think Lambros maybe could answer this um, better. But you know, I think you do as as a person. If that did happen to you, right, you then can say, under what power are you doing this? Um, why are you stopping me? You don't have to give your details, and and it's worth you know remembering those things. But yeah. it just, I think it just signals like that. There's a very odd. Um, relationship that the police have to the law right whereby their actions are not necessarily legally defined and they can act outside of the parameters of the law um, and they do so frequently um, without legally defined powers that then only retrospectively the law can then can then um can then uh, legitimize or justify those powers. So for example, um, sorry to, to give another example, but the no, examples are really helpful. 
the power of stop and search, right? This was not a legally defined power, but the police were just going out and doing it, right? They were they were stopping people in the street and searching them because because they can, right? Because because they have the threat of force behind them. They can they that they were stopping and searching people in the street, and then and it, it was only retrospectively that the law was then changed to grant that power to the police once it had been recognised that it was a widely used power they were using anyway. So there's a very um, um, backwards relationship between the police and the law than, than is commonly thought. It's not that there's these laws and then the police go out and enforce them, it's that the police are acting and then sometimes the law will will then adjust itself in order to, to, to legitimise what the police are doing, yeah. if that makes sense. Definitely. And, and one thing we should um, sort of note, note here, particularly, you know, again, in the context that we find ourselves is that, you know, the new amendments to um, the policing sentencing and court bill actually increase those powers and, and, and increase the, uh, the amount of, as it's known, um, suspicionless stop and searches, which means that the police don't even need to give any reasonable uh, ground for, for suspicion. They, mm. They're just given um, essentially, um, you know, the powers to, to suspect anyone and, and as a result of that, uh, stop and search anyone who they might deem, you know, um, threatening on dangerous or, or law-breaking. And what is, what is also vital to note here is that even in those drug searches or indeed stop searches, of course, the outcomes are racialized too. So there's yeah. scores of scores of research to show that even with drug arrests, for example, the, you know it's disproportionately Black Britons who who bear the brunt of uh, of um, of such um, such orders uh, rather than the white uh, counterparts. Which is not to say that drug use is more prevalent among Black Britons. That's the paradox of uh, of it all. Actually, it's not a paradox. It's par it's a paradox logically, but it's not a paradox. Uh, politically, so so we should be aware of that too, and and it's important to note how criminal justice essentially generates crime ultimately, precisely because it produces it, right? It produces the outcomes for what we call uh, crime. So so the more you stop and search a particular group, of course, the more criminal they become in yeah. terms of statistics and in terms of categorization, right? So so it's important to think about crime as you know the object. Uh, the product, sorry, rather than the object of, of criminal justice um, interventions. And, um, you know, I think this is an important sort of reminder here. Definitely. So I wanted to move on to talk a bit more specifically about the defund the police argument. Um, and kind of despite all the issues we've discussed here, it is one that makes a lot of people feel quite uncomfortable. Um, why do you why do you think this is? You've kind of already answered it in everything you've said so far. Um, but yeah, let's talk about def defunding the police. Yeah, I mean, I think I think, you know, there's there's lots of reasons. Um, one of the one of the things that um, I think is, is worth thinking about is the concept that uh, Robert Rayner, criminologist at LSE, talks about, which is this idea of police fetishism. Um, and in the US, this term cop gander has now has now become popular as well. Cop gander, yeah. So mm. this is the idea that, you know, we're bombarded daily um, via kind of fictional representations on TV and in oh, films. Okay. 
um, about um, what the police are, what they do, and why they're why they're necessary for social life, right? So it's this idea that without the police, there would be anarchy, there would be chaos, there'd be huge amounts of violence, and the way that TV programs and films um, represent this issue, um, even even those TV programs and films that might be, you know quote unquote critical of the police are still um, providing a, a sense in which, you know, the police, there might be um, some corruption, there might be some bending of the rules here and there, but ultimately what they're trying to do is catch the bad guy, right? Or or they're trying to, um, they're trying to, uh, you know, um, fight these these forces of evil um, that are that are so great. Um, that, you know, maybe that necessitates the fact that they're going to have to work outside of the rules of it. And I think that um, in itself is 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 very, very, um, it's a very deep seated, long um, idea about about the, the function that the police perform in society. Right. Which is this yeah. thin blue line, as we you know, this this idea that, that without them, um, society would collapse, anarchy would ensue. And I think this is a really, um, this has a really long political theoretical history um, that I won't go into here, but we, but, but it's so interesting that, that um, I think Lambros probably has the same experience, but when you talk about abolishing the police um, with various audiences, yeah, that the, the immediate reaction is, is, is one of kind of defensiveness, is, is, is it, people get quite angry actually and I think it's because you know the the um the the how deep how deep these feelings go about about social order and about anarchy and chaos were the police not to be there um, and I think this is something very much upheld by fictional representations of the police um across our screens all the time you know how popular detective programs are and, yeah. um, and true crime as true well. Crime, yeah. I think, I think even, you know, programs like, you know, I think about programs like The Wire, which I think are, you know, The Wire is probably the closest thing to a kind of critique of the police, but there's still, there's still this kind of liberal sensibility, I think, at the heart of it, right? You know, you've got the good, good sympathetic police characters in there who are trying to do a good thing despite you know the structure of policing being corrupt and 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 extremely problematic and violent and all of these things that there's still this kind of liberal heart there I think that um that actually any depiction on, of, of the police on the TV, on TV screens actually kind of ends up reproducing so even if the system is messed up the individual police people have yeah. good hearts and want to do the yeah. right thing and protect us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, if, if I can add a couple of things there, I mean, just sort of starting with the question of, you know, what, why does it sort of upset or, or make people so uncomfortable to think about, you know, defunding um, the police? I, I think it's important to sort of recognize that ultimately the main reason why that happens is because it goes against everything we are educated and socialized into believing. Right. Yeah. So that, that can feel many, many people unmoored, confused, anxious and insecure. But what I would say is that, you know, even if people want to defend rather than um, sort of defund the, the police, what is interesting to think about is knowing what you know or trying to find out what you can find out about, you know, what policing is, does, whom, you know, who it does it to and who does it do it for, that it does it in the names of in the name and with the funds, tax uh, of, of those who defend it. 
So even if people defend policing, they should think twice about it because it's in their name and in their funds that police do what 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 they do. So what what you know part of what the book tries to do, among other things, is to to get people to think whether defending rather than defunding the police is actually defensible. Um, and and I would like to return to that you know those series of questions that I I think it's always useful to think about you know what something is what does it do who does it do it to and who does it do it for and I th I think that's particularly uh, relevant when it comes to um, when it comes to policing and just if I can add a couple of examples to how how policing and, and the police are seen as a, um, you know, uncontroversial and problematic sort of presence in our social, cultural, and political life. You know, th th there's even kids um, uh, programs and cartoons like Paw Patrol, for instance, which nobody thinks that's problematic, right? Uh, but what, you know, could you not tell the same story minus police characters or this Playmobil figurines who are, who are police? So, so it's not even just the sort of, Kind of titillating police dramas or crime series that that people are addicted to uh, and so on it's also you know the fact that we're ed literally educating you know children into thinking well this is what our society is like and there are you know cops who do this and you can disguise them as animals and they're you know they're patrolling other sort of animals or whatever but what is also interesting again in that in that dynamic between the institution and individual police officers, we should be very, very careful not to buy into that idea that there are, you know, uh, you know good individual police officers who, um, uh, you know, who uphold high morals and, and, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that it's important not to individualize that role, because it doesn't matter what, what an individual police officer wants to do or what their ethics and politics are. What matters is the legal powers that they have at hand. It doesn't right. matter if, if a nice police officer stops and searches you. What matters is that they've got the legal powers to do that. That's, that's what matters. But the outcome remains the same. It doesn't matter how nice that officer is. Yeah. What, what matters is that policing, that is to say the institution, the function of policing, is um, is actually a dangerous and threatening presence to those who are police. So it has nothing to do with individual police officers. But going back to the crime dramas, that's what we're distracted by, isn't it? It's this good individual character, and we're kind of focusing on them, and then we don't question the system around them, do we? Yeah, Paw Patrol is a really interesting example as well. It's so it's just from age zero, isn't it, that these ideas are put into place? Um, why wouldn't a reformist approach work, in your opinion? I mean, I think I think there's lots of different ways to answer this question, but I think the, the one way of looking at it is to say, look, you know, we've we've tried it. That like the the the, the history. So Angela Davis, um, famous um, abolitionist. Uh, working in the US, she says about prisons, the history of the prison is, is the history of its reform, right? The prison was introduced as a humane 
quote unquote alternative to the barbaric quote unquote punishments that have come before it. And I think we can say a similar thing about policing in the sense that the history of this institution is the history of its reform. It's constantly um, been challenged um, by those who, who have been policed and, and have been at the sharp end of police power. Um, and there's been countless, you know, um, kind of generational upheavals with regard to the police. Um, there's been countless examples of historical um, racial justice movements challenging the police and saying this has to change, right? This is this this can't go on. Um, and all that we've seen is that is that you know there might be some kind of surface level, there might be some kind of aesthetic rearrangement of what of what the police do, right? And there might be some calls to say, you know, we need more black police officers or we need better training of the police, right? And these things have been going on for decades and decades and decades. And we're still at this point where, you know, um, black people are being disproportionately, um, not only kind of police, but also incarcerated um, as well. So, so there's, there's something, you know, to, to, to learn from history there. And, and I just don't think you can ignore anymore the fact that this has been going on for so long. Yeah. Like it, 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 you can't, the, the reformist approach um, has been tried and again and again, and it's always failed. So. Yeah. And, and I think in that, in that context, it's useful to think about reform more as a, as a question of adaptation rather than reform. It's more like the existing sort of um, uh, institutions adapting themselves to criticism and, and taking a different form, but actually retaining the same function. So, so uh, again, it's, it's a question of mutation, you know, very much like the virus where we're sort of, you know, it, it becomes, it takes a different shape, but, but its function remains the same. I mean, the way I normally, um, talk about this to, to my students in particular uh, when it comes to reform is, is to ask them to recognize the problems with policing, not as, as system errors, but as default settings. Yeah. And I think that, that that's quite an interesting, at least I find it as a, you know, a useful way of describing these, that you know, these are not system errors, they are default settings, they are structural features of that institution, which, which, you know, that have a very long, history that you know that still shapes the mission and, and function of, of policing and this cannot be undone by simply adding layers of procedure so you don't you don't you know you can't possibly change the structure of something by adding more layers to it so if the fundamental point of the police is to maintain the status quo and benefit those who invented the police then no amount of change or reform is going to mean that that's not the case is it yeah, yeah and this yeah. is not to suggest that the, the history of policing has been linear from colonial from the era of colonial slavery to yeah. today but to say that the logic remains the same you know regardless of how it is played out or how it mutates and how it changes over time and that's 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 quite you know important and what's particularly important again in the context of i, I guess um, you know britain is that a lot of the legislation that we are familiar with is still legislation that was written in the, in the 19th century. So uh, yeah. again, stop and search based on vagrancy. Our joint, the joint enterprise doctrine is also based, based on Victorian law. So it's not even the history is history. It's actually, you know, the, the very laws that were instituted then are still 
um, determining essentially how people are ruled and governed today, right? And yeah. it's not just that the evolution of those laws, but the very same laws that were instituted in 19th century England still shape who is suspected and who isn't, yeah. who comes under uh, the control of, of the police and, and who doesn't. And it's the, it's the very same laws, not different laws, the very same laws. Yeah. And again, it, it's important to remind ourselves that, it, you know, for the most part of the 19th century, Britain is not actually, you know, a nation. It's still an empire with, with colonial mm. territories, right? So it's, even if one was to say that, yeah, but what happens in within its sort of regional or geographical borders is independent from, um, you know, its relationship to its colonial outposts, if you have an empire which has a colonial logic, that's how it thinks, that's how it acts. Yeah, yeah. Right? So that, that is its logic, that is its function, that is its purpose, even though it might sort of deal with its affairs, you know, internally or within the geographical borders of the nation, it still remains an empire. And again, something that we do show in, in the book and sometimes that something that I invite my students to do is to think about the very symbols of, of, of the police. So look at the police uniforms. What do they have? They have a crown. What does the crown symbolize? Right? Why is that there? Symbols are important because they yeah. tell us something. They represent the very order that we, you know, that we are socialized and educated into. So Again, that's absolutely vital that we think about those things in, in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to um, shift to thinking ahead and change. Uh, you make it clear that your aim with the book is to change your worldview and shift perspectives to, uh, to open up the possibility of abolition rather than you offering up a specific blueprint for change. But I think this could make things feel very theoretical and far removed from our reality now. But you actually show that abolitionism is already practiced in many different spaces. Can you give us some examples of this? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll have a go uh, briefly. I mean, th there's there's a very effective um, uh, example, but it's, it's also very, very problematic. So okay. I, I just want people to think about, the, you know, the analogy rather than the specifics of it. So okay. for example, you know, the example I'm gonna use is one which, which often likens abolitionism to, um, as a lived reality, to the experience of social life in, in an affluent suburb. Um, so given that um, suburbs are generally, sort of affluent suburbs are generally neighborhoods that are wealthy, clean, safe, and offer access to vital infrastructures and resources, no police presence is necessary. Right. right? So, so that's what abolition could look like. Now, there, there are obvious reasons why that's a problematic analogy, but it nevertheless helps us to make that shift in our thinking about, you know, how can you have the things that you want without um, uh, having the police present, right? So although it, it is a facile and fanciful way of putting it, it nevertheless drives, uh, you know, a central abolitionist message home. Do you mean just in that it shows it's possible? That it is possible yeah. and that some some people, you know, can have trouble-free lives without, without that having to do anything to do with, uh, with uh, you know, with, with the police. Yeah. And, and I guess 
again, even from such a fanciful and problematic example, one can at least still start thinking about um, abolitionism as a political, you know, logic and a move, movement that actually opposes violence and harm and, and wants to see the reduction of both. But again, not through policing, but through its absence. And, and one thing we should also note about is, note here, is that abolitionism is kind of tainted by negative connotations. But if one thinks about the long, its long history, which, which we also talk about in the book, mm-hmm. it, it's, it has always been a movement in its 19th, 19th century roots, which is against oppression. Yeah. Right. The abolitionists of 19th century were were opposing slavery. They weren't opposing anything good. They were opposing bad things. So abolitionists today also oppose things that are bad. I mean, I think I think there's a um, uh, a kind of common view of abolitionist thinking as being naive or utopian, and I think it's really important to remember that actually. Um, people who are who are um, seriously engaging with abolitionism and 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 kind of building movements towards it um, are the least naive people or utopian people um, um, that you could think of in the sense that um, Mariam Kaba, who's a very famous um, abolitionist writer and organizer in the US, her I think her background began in a um, women's domestic violence shelter, right? So, so um, aboli- you know, abolitionists are not saying like, oh, um, you know, if we abolish the police, then like everything will be fine and there won't be any people that, um, that kind of commit acts of harm or violence, but rather to say that the way that we should deal with people who commit acts of harm or violence should be radically transformed. And this is something like um, the work of um, transformative justice, for example, which is a kind of a different way of thinking about trying to trying to um, instill notions of accountability. Um, so thinking about how how do we hold people accountable for their actions without simply punishing them and locking yeah. them in 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 extremely awful conditions, which are only going to make someone worse, right? Which mm-hmm. that's the only outcome that is possible from imprisoning people is 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 that ultimately we're you know. Um, we're just kind of shutting people away and saying, actually, we're not going to deal with this. We're just going to lock yeah. you in a cage and hope that you emerge um, a better person for it. And 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 abolitionists say, no, this is this is a terrible way um, actually to deal with with the realities of violence and harm in society. So I think that's a really important thing to remember is that actually abolitionists are are very often people that have seen um, violence and harm in in its worst manifestations in society and and say, you know what, policing and prisons is actually not helping, is not helping this at all. um, And that we need to think about this differently. So providing, yeah, so networks of care, um, community centers, thinking about community accountability and, and building these sorts of things rather than uh, simply using more violence to address violence. Yeah, I found it really useful in the book when you did mention like, like the, what could happen in communities and things like that, because it does help you make the mental shift, I think, um, away from policing and towards that, which leads me on to my final question. Um, so in the book, you give five real practical suggestions for how people can start to move towards abolitionist practices and ways of thinking. So please, can we finish by talking through these? 
So, I mean, the first one, um, so I'm going to read it out, um, is read extensively about policing and police racism to gain a deeper and more critical insight into both. I would encourage people to read Ida B. Wells, either her own, uh, you know, writings or indeed her autobiography, where one can can understand the arguments, uh, you know, against policing and police racism through the prism of her own life or the writings of... Uh, Angelina Grimke, for example, or um, or indeed essays by Elsa Gouveia, for, for example, a, a very notable Caribbean scholar, um, um, broadly, not just about policing, or indeed the, the, an excellent essay that comes to mind is uh, Sylvia Winter's uh, No Humans Involved. Uh, which was in response to the Rodney King beating in LA, where essentially the police were using the, the code no NHI, no humans involved, to, to refer to, uh, to yeah. African Americans. Um, so, you know, these are just sort of, you know, three examples of, um, of authors, scholars, and thinkers who have engaged with those issues in, in very sort of deep profound and thoughtful ways that, um, again, I, I personally would recommend. And that, that, as Milena said, that just simply scratches the surface. There's, there's uh, you, know, wide, you know, wide, exciting um, and, and, and fascinating scholarship around that. So the second suggestion is don't vote for political parties that promise more powers and more money to the police, or at least do challenge them about it. Um, and an example I would use here from the last uh, general election we had was that the Tories promised 20,000 more police officers on the streets and Labour uh, promised 10,000. So the difference between the two is essentially 10,000 uh, police officers. Um, and, and I think that's, that's important for us to think about, you know, what, what it means, uh, it, you know, why policing is so central to um, election campaigns and, and, and slogans and manifestos that, 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 that it becomes a question of numbers rather than police powers or, or agendas to reduce, uh, or rather, sorry, to increase public safety and ensure the reduction of violence and harm. And again, it's something we don't necessarily question, isn't it? Because you go, oh, 20,000 police officers, brilliant. That doesn't seem like a bad thing. And yeah, yeah, th yeah this is why the, these conversations are so important. And, and often the argument that is being made in, in you know, particularly from uh, from the Labour Party and its supporters is that, oh, you know, we're talking about jobs here. So so essentially what we want to protect is jobs. I mean, you could create different job opportunities. So, you know, uh, being critical about police powers doesn't mean that you're advocating a mass um, sort of sacking of, um, of people from the jobs. Um, no. Yeah. There could be jobs in the community, couldn't there, and different kinds of roles for people. Okay, so number three. Number three is learn about, join, support, and organize uh, with groups against uh, state and police violence. So in, in the UK, this includes Netball, Inquest, um, the London Campaign Against Police and State Violence, Sisters Uncut, and the Northern Police Monitoring Project as well as the United Families and Friends campaign. Obviously, there's more organizations in the US um, and, and Canada and around the world, but I, I guess I won't mention these here, although they are mentioned in, uh, in this book. This, this, um, 
for the sake of brevity. Because um, there is a lot happening already. There are quite a few organisations, aren't there, who are um, yeah, act actively doing things to make change. Yeah, I think I think you know, with these kinds of conversations, there's always the danger that it becomes very US centric, and mm. um, I guess it's worth reminding uh, people that actually there is a lot going on in the UK uh, in terms of activism and and, and organising around around these issues, um, although maybe they don't um, get as much you know airtime <laughs> as as the US. Um, might might sometimes do, um, but as yeah, as Lambros was mentioning, there's there is a lot going on, a lot on here as well, um, and and that, and and the same goes for for writing and and uh, books about police abolition as well. Again, a lot of um, the kind of touchstone um, literature tends to be from the US, but of course here, um, yeah, people like Lola Olafemi, Adam Adam Elliot Cooper. Um, the Brick by Brick, How We Build a World Without Prisons book by Cradle Community. Like these are just contemporary people writing about these issues in, in a UK context as well. Yeah, yeah as, as well as Abolish the Police, which was edited yeah. by Koshka Duff. But also what's interesting to note here is that again, none of those groups or writings are, 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 are new either. So for example, in the 60s, there was the West Indian Standing Conference which wrote pamphlets uh, against um, police racism and so on so so it's very important for us not to lose sight of that of that history be it colonial or post-war history of organization and thinking against um, police violence uh, I, I think I, you know it's important for me to um, you know to stress that th there's nothing new here uh, right, this yeah. might be a, a, a new wave of you know uh, thinking and intellectual and production as well as organizing against police violence but it, it's not that this suddenly um, became an issue now um, yeah there's, there's a very long uh, tradition that is very very you know, exciting to explore if, if people want to suggest that yeah yeah great um number four number four is think about what we can do to be safe without the police and don't call the police if possible and um we give examples in, in the book of organizations that, that offer flow charts and information about how doing that. For example, the Coalition Against Police Crimes and Repression website has a flow chart that lists alternatives to calling the police. And again, back to something that Milena was saying, it's important to note that these are produced by people who are often who often suffer such forms of violence as well. So this mm. is not, you know, um, an elitist group of people who, you know, scratch their heads and come up with proposals of, of how to deal with violence without ever having experienced such violence. Yeah. This advice comes from people for whom violence is a regular occurrence. Right, um, yeah. And, and still they, they are not, you know, they're opposed to police presence in the, in the communities as actually agents of violence, not agents against violence yeah um yeah so that that would be the uh, the, the fourth point I, I think okay and so the the final suggestion the final is is you know almost purely academic but i think it's very very important um and that if you are scholars do research on not for the police uh so teach policing and the history of policing differently 
to illustrate how the legacies and afterlives of colonialism and slavery still structure the criminal justice system today. It's so useful like to have a book like yours which outlines all the history and all the academic conversation to wrap it up with these quite practical things that people can do makes it so valuable I think the book did change the way I thought about things and it gives just some really useful stepping stones for further research and we'll put a lot of that information with this podcast as well if we bring it together I mean one thing that I I I would perhaps add is that you know we're not it was not written as an attempt to indoctrinate anyone. Uh, now, of course, we would like to persuade people and convince people to sort of you know, join the abolitionist camp, if you like. Uh, but um, I think the intention was more to sort of clarify where our misconceptions come from and, mm. and, what, and what people you know, might be prepared to do about that. Because I, I think what's particularly worrying at the moment is that there's a lot of you know, resistance against abolitionist arguments on the ground that, uh, you know, no matter what, we need to keep, you know, the current system as it is because, you know, otherwise all hell will, will break loose. Mm. Uh, and, and I think it's important to essentially make ourselves feel comfortable with that argument by showing that, well, uh, you know, what we're arguing then for, n- not us as authors, but anyone who, who defends, um, you know, the current way that things are done is essentially saying, well, all we want to do is, is, is just sort of minimize oppression, not get rid of, um, you know, uh, the existing oppression and that we can't have any criticism of the things that we hold dear, even if those things produce violence and, and patterns of social inequality, exclusion and, and oppression, which I think is a deeply dangerous and ethically dubious and wearing arguments to make, yet this is the mainstream argument that is being made, that we can't afford to lose those institutions, even though we fund them, we support them um, through our own money, and indeed, even though they might generate violence and harm. Just to, just to add something to that, I think I'm finding myself getting kind of increasingly impatient with the language of kind of disproportionality itself in the sense that it sort of um, uh, implies that there is a proportional level that that we're striving for, right? The problem is disproportionality. And if only the policing of um, different um, communities was proportionate, then it would then it would be fine, right? And and I think I think we have to kind of challenge that as well and say that the, the disproportionality, like Lambos was saying, that's a structural structural feature of policing. Um, and also, you know, the language of kind of police brutality, for example, really, really kind of um, also implies that there's a level of policing that isn't brutal, that isn't violent, right? That police violence, it's it's the excess of police violence that's the problem. And I think um, people like me and Lambros would argue that, that the excessiveness um, uh, is of course a problem, but, but that that you can't make policing um, nice and that and that and that police violence and police brutality um, you can't kind of um, cut away those things and, and and leave the institution of policing intact and this is why we would advocate an abolitionist position right there, there is no kind of um, um, way of making this institution uh, proportionate and non-violent because because that's what policing is in its in its very core great that's an important final word, I think. Thank you. Thank you, Lambros. Thank you, Milena. Um, Thank you. So-
Thank you. More information about the book, Policing the Pandemic, How Public Health Becomes Public Order, by Lambros and Malena, is available on the Policy Press website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.